0: You are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2019. Today's episode is titled, The M&M Syndrome. Wise managers understand the M&M Syndrome is the default condition of mankind. Even professing Christians can revert to living in this state. Therefore, to detect the M&M Syndrome, wise organizational leaders will consider more than just a person's profession of faith. They will look deeper. They will seek to discern the person's heart, his or her worldview, To do this, organizational leaders should consider many factors, such as a person's key relationships, both family and friends, overall deportment, work history, outside activities, and prior work reputation. All of these will reveal truth about a person's worldview and provide clues as to whether the person has the maturity to live aligned with the will and ways of God. Only those who so live work with excellence to serve the purpose of God in others. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Adopted. Well, good morning again,
1: and this morning we want to talk about Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And for titling purposes, I'm calling this Paul's Purpose in Discipleship, and the subtitle is The Formation of Christ. That's what he was really after, was seeing Christ formed in people. So a few words of introduction. Introduction. One of the seminal lessons of this epistle is that gaining and maintaining a clear understanding of the singular gospel of the grace of Christ is difficult. It's not that the gospel is difficult to understand or even accept, but it is easy to revert to worldly thinking. Perhaps this is because the paradigm of the fig leaves is so firmly ensconced within the human nature. Even after regeneration, the old thinking and behavior patterns are not immediately eradicated, but salvation because salvation is a process people however commonly view salvation as an event an emotional experience whereby they accept christ and many think that this event is substantially all there is to salvation frequently new converts to christianity believe they have a ticket to heaven when they die and can live here and now as they please this pedestrian view of salvation places a strong emphasis on jesus as savior but little emphasis on Jesus as Lord. In fact, many think it's optional to embrace Jesus as Lord. In the Galatian epistle, the apostle Paul works hard to debunk this and other errors regarding the singular gospel. And remember, the singular gospel is a way to refer to the reality that there is only one gospel. There's not more than one gospel. There's not multiple gospels. There is one gospel. In chapter 1, he stated with deep conviction his belief in the singular gospel as the only true gospel. This gospel was given to him through a singular revelation, and he was given a singular calling to communicate the singular gospel. In chapter 2, Paul humbly submitted to the original apostles seeking confirmation regarding the veracity of his understanding of the singular gospel, which the apostles could confirm. In addition, the apostles Commissioned Paul to proclaim the singular gospel, according to the, the given to him according to the grace of Christ. Paul also clarified that the gospel was the gospel of the grace of God, not human works. Nevertheless, the response to the gospel should be obedience to Christ. Not note Paul's words on this at the end of chapter two. Perhaps the seminal text which expresses Paul's understanding of grace and works. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. You see, even though we've been crucified with Christ, we still live. So there's the distinction. The crucifixion with Christ refers to our position. Now living in the flesh refers to the process of sanctification. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. You see, just it's pretty abrupt there. He doesn't really do any kind of transition. He immediately anticipates a question. The question is, Paul, if you're so bound up with grace, why are you so focused on obedience? You know, it sounds like you nullify the grace of God. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, Christ died for the purpose of, of giving us acceptance with God, so now, based on our position as sons of God, as being redeemed, as being accepted and justified, we can now live obedient lives in in thankfulness and gratitude, not to get saved, but because we are saved. Chapter 3 began a discussion of the role of the Old Testament law in relationship to the singular gospel, and in particular, the process of sanctification. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to reveal the depth of human depravity and to keep us under the conviction of our impotency until Christ came. The law was never intended as a means of salvation, not because the law wasn't good. It was because of our own sin nature. The law instead is a a tool of revelation. Like a schoolmaster, the law was intended to teach mankind the lesson of total depravity, and mankind's need for the singular gospel those are the key seminal lessons the transition connection between chapter 3 and 4 was sonship uh, john calvin is, uh, in his commentary made the comment that there shouldn't be a transition between chapter 3 and 4 it should be a continuation of chapter 3 in chapter 4 because they are very very connected very the flow of thought continues Arguably, one of the most indomitable challenges of every Christian is to live congruent with this truth, that is, the truth of sonship. The temptation to revert to the way of the law, the pattern of fig leaves, is strong. There's something in the depraved nature of man that makes us think that we can save ourselves through our own efforts. Our assumption is that we must work hard to be good enough to merit acceptance with God. But this is impossible we cannot self-justify we cannot self-sanctify we cannot self-glorify the process of salvation from beginning to end is accomplished solely based on the work of christ is proclaimed to us in the singular gospel of the grace of christ nevertheless we humans keep trying to change this reality we keep trying to return to the, the obedience to the law as the basis for our salvation So here the Apostle Paul again admonished us on this point. Through the words he appended to the Galatians. So let's be challenged as we read these words. May it challenge us to see the gospel more clearly. So let me read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll we'll talk about it verse by verse. Galatians 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you were no longer a son, a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature are not gods. It's interesting that word for nature there is the word uh, that we get physics from. So physics is the study of the primary principles of the physical world. So it's saying here by nature we're enslaved to these these primary principles of the physical worlds, which are not God's at all. Reading on in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Wow, that is an amazing statement right there. Well, let's focus then on this first six verses, first seven verses first, and uh, try to understand what Paul is trying to say here. He starts out, I I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So in the last few verses of chapter 3, ontological equality was presented in chapter 3, verse 28. And then the imageries of putting on clothing in chapter 3, verse 27, and being an heir to an inheritance in verse 29, were used to convey the state of sonship or heirship of God. Those who are in Christ have put on Christ like a garment. Those who who belong to Christ, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or social class, are imputed to be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All that was stated at the end of chapter 3. So now in chapter 4, Paul begins to explain more fully the idea of sonship or heirship. The purpose of heirship is to train, to prepare sons for their future duties as sons, as those who will receive the inheritance. Heirs must develop skills to steward their inheritance or they will squander it. Proverbs 20:21 20, is a great example of that. An inheritance quickly gained is soon lost. Something that's quickly gained implies it's gained before the stewardship skills are in place. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul compared a son or heir to a slave. Before the age of majority, the child needed to be trained to li- how, how to live. Slaves were not free, but were directed. So also, a child was treated like a slave in the sense that the child needed management and supervision. But the child was still an heir, and therefore the training was preparatory. It was temporal. It was It would be, be an end of this and And the end would be once the child is prepared and fully trained for the duties as an heir. the analogy here continued in verse two, comparing spiritual heritage to natural heritage. He says in verse two, "But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father." So just as the natural father stipulated the time of the training, so also the timing of the Old Testament law to train the ecclesia was stipulated by the heavenly Father. Now, just a quick reminder in the in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament the word uh, the word ecclesia is used in reference to the nation of Israel and it's used about over sixty times and it's generally translated assembly that same word ecclesia is used in the New Testament it's translated church now but it's still the same word in both the Old Testament and New Testament now the Old Testament this does not suggest that the Old Testament usage of ecclesia is exactly the same as the New Testament. The New Testament ecclesia are those who are empowered by the Spirit, and we are here to execute the rule and reign of Christ. The Old Testament ecclesia had the same charter, but they failed because they didn't have the empowerment of God. They were depending on their own human potency to do it, and so they failed. We now have the power of Christ in us, so the New Testament ecclesia will be efficacious. It will work in the end. It may not be pretty, but it will work in the end because God is empowering it to work. The purpose of the training of the heirs was to facilitate transformation in their hearts. Paul noted that when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That was the default state. The role of the Old Testament was to train the ecclesia in preparation for the first advent of Christ, All of the Old Testament pointed to the need of Christ and his work on our behalf to redeem us and therefore to fulfill the Abrahamic uh, promise. The Ecclesia was redeemed from the state of being like a child under the Old Testament law so that the Ecclesia could be adopted as the true sons of God based on the grace of Christ. Then in verses 4 and 5, Let me read those real quickly. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when the fullness of time came, Christ came. Christ came as a real person in history. This is realism. At the alumni event, we talked about nominalism. Nominalism denies the reality the reality that universals exist, and once you de- deny the spiritual reality of universals, then you put all the emphasis of reality on the human being and on the natural. It's easy to get into humanism, which is exactly what's happened, and naturalism, which has happened subsequent to that. So, about a thousand years ago, when nominalism rose up, it's it's been slowly uh, growing and, and maturing and its implications, and now today we live in a sea of nominalism. And nominalism at the root becomes atheism. It becomes humanism, because ultimately, if you don't have spiritual reality, you don't have universal spiritual reality, you don't necessarily have a God, you don't have a creation, you don't have a fall, you don't have a Christ to save, you don't have a cross, you don't have a resurrection. All those things become fictitious and questioned. And so that's what's happened, particularly over the last 300 years, is an unraveling of historical Christianity because of the concept of nominalism. But what you have Paul doing here is being very clear that Jesus was a real person in history. He, was, he really was born of a woman. He really was the only th- theanthropic person in all of history. He was born of a virgin, Mary. He was not subject to total depravity because the seed of depravity came through the man, not through the woman. He was born of a virgin and consequently not under the penalty of physical death. This Jesus was also born under the Old Testament, meaning he was under the Old Covenant. He was the only one who could ever live it perfectly, and he did. And he voluntarily submitted to death. His righteousness would be imputed to us as part of our salvation. And based on this, Christians were adopted into the family of God based on the work of Christ alone. In other words, Christ paid a price that he did not owe and died a death that he did not deserve so that the ecclesia would have life. As a witness to the reality, the members of the ecclesia were given the Holy Spirit internally. In Romans 8:15 through 17 Paul provided more detail regarding this truth. He said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But when you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the best way we can come up with this is something like, Dear Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That may be real easy to kind of gloss over that last phrase because Paul Paul states here that a mark of someone who truly is a Christian and truly received the Holy Spirit is that they suffer with Christ. Peter noted the call of believers to suffer for doing what is right, just as Jesus did. Listen to what Peter said in First Peter chapter two, verses twenty and twenty one. Peter writes, for what credit is it if you, when you sin, you are beaten for it you and you endure? But if you do good, that is you, you, and the word good there speaks of alignment with God. You do things that are righteous, aligned with God. If you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in sight of God. In other words, you're suffering for doing the right thing. For this is what you've been called to. In other words, part of our calling is to suffer for doing the right thing, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might fall on these steps. You see, it's a, <clears throat> this is a powerful mark of a true believer, is they will endure hardship. Paul said also to his uh, spiritual son Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is part of the lot of being a Christian. It is not a popular topic to speak about. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear that God is going to make their lives easy, pleasant, comfortable, and convenient, and they don't want to suffer. They think, God loves me, I will not suffer. You do not understand what love is if that's how you think, and that's how most professing Christians think today. Then in verse 7, Paul personalizes his remarks in a very interesting way. He changes his grammar. There you have, uh, let me read the text to you. It says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now that word you, of course, in English, it can be second person singular or second person plural. And it's very different. Singular is very personal. Plural is talking about you as a group. So which is it? Well, he actually changes here and uses a second person singular. So you... He's personalizing what he's talking about. He's been talking to the group, and now he's personalized. So he's saying, you, each of you, individually, are no longer a slave, but a son. So we're not talking about slaves and sons. We're talking about a slave and a son. You are individually a slave and a son. And if a son, then you are an heir, not heirs, an heir. Now, it's true that we're all sons, It's true that we're all heirs, but but we are individually sons, and we're individually an heir. So he's speaking individually and personalizing his teaching here about the truth of adoption. You know, you might paraphrase, paraphrase these words as follows. Each one of you is no longer a slave, but a son of the grace of God, by the grace of God. The personalization adds warmth and security to his fatherly admonition. And remember, just in the prior chapter, he started that chapter with talking about them being fools. And so if you're going to call somebody a fool, which is a pretty strong term, it's nice to throw in some uh, comforting, warm words here, and he does that here. A mark of those who know Christ will be spiritual training and transformation from being little children, which in the Greek is the word nipios, uh, who live according to, uh, who who learn to live according to as sons. In other words, little children live by the ways of the world, but sons, true sons, hijos, they learn to live like Christ, and like Christ they are heirs of God's promise to Abraham. Now let me go on to verses eight through eight, nine and ten. Let me just read those real quickly to you. Verse eight: Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want, want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. In verse 8, Paul reminded his readers that of their base nature. In the pre price condition. They serve the creation, not the creator. You can see Romans 1 on that, where Paul expands on that. Furthermore, since there are no other gods, they serve a lie. In other words, if you serve the creation in any way, you are serving a lie. That is idolatry. Likewise, with all of us, we can be brought into this idolatry. It is very easy for that to happen. In fact, that is our default state. Before Christ, we were in bondage to sin, to the elementary principles of the world that were opposed to Christ, such as the worship of ourselves, narcissism, the worship of pleasure, hedonism, and the worship of money, uh, mammon worship. In the pre-Christ condition, the base human nature of mankind is in bondage to all of these sinful lifestyles. Paul continues in verse 9 with these words, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Now, that is a really interesting phrase. The word know here is used salvifically. In other words, in in Scripture, coming to Christ is coming to know Christ. And the word know has both cognitive and relational aspect to it. It's not just knowledge of something. It's a relationship with a person. So the knowledge of God is equated to eternal life in John 17.3. So that's another way we know he's talking salvifically here. And it's interesting that Paul corrects himself. He says, he starts out by saying, but now that you've come to know God, and this, then he realized, you know, you're not mature enough for me to say it that way. I have to say it a little differently. Rather, you have become, you've been known by God. Very interesting shift there. He, again, he uses grammar to make, make his point. You see, he starts out talking about you came to know God. And the word to know there, it's a participle. It's it's in the active voice. And the active voice means the subject is doing the action. So it's saying you have come to know God, the object. And then he realizes that you're not mature enough to hear that phrase. You won't hear it properly, so I'm going to clarify that. And see, now he shifts to the passive voice. And the passive voice... The subject is acted, acted upon by the object. So now it's it, you could read this better, that you, were, you are being known by God. See, the active voice is you were knowing God. Well, that's really not quite right, as you're being known by God. And by virtue of God knowing you, that has empowered you now to respond to him. So in other words, God ch- chose to know you, which then empowered you, to know him now this is called the doctrine of election and the doctor of election is a predicate to the next question paul asked a very vexing question in the second half of this verse he says, well how then can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more in other words you are regressing you are backsliding you're going backwards to something that you gave up when you came to Christ, you gave all that up, but now you have turned back to it. How can that be? You see, Paul knew of uh, the practices of the Galatians, at least in part, because verse 10, he tells us what those practices are. They have to do with the sun and the moon. You know, these were the, the, the ways that they tell time. If you look at verse 10, it says you observe days, months, seasons, and years. This is all about observing, observing time, various festivals and feasts associated with the time of the year. Well, that means they were probably worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars, you know, the universe in some way. So they had returned to the ritualistic practices of idolatry. And it probably was because they didn't really know better. They weren't well grounded in Christ. They were returning to the way of the fig leaves. You see, once you begin to revert to the way of the fig leaves, things can really unravel quickly. And that's what happened here. And we have to learn, we've got to get really clear that coming to Christ is not an event, it's a process. It starts with regeneration, bringing us into a saving knowledge of Christ where He has known us. He's elected us, and now we respond in faith. The faith is not from us. It is ultimately he's empowered us to believe, and now we enter into this process called sanctification. Sanctification is where we are progressively growing. You see, when you're saved, the moment you are justified, you are positionally in Christ. But you are practically still, you have all the habits that you had before. Those habits of the world have to be expunged from us, so that we can live as we are in Christ, live according to our position in Christ. We have to turn our practices into alignment with our position of being in Christ. So this is the big challenge of every believer. Now, finally, in this section, verse 11, Paul uh, Paul recognizes that, you know, there's a danger here for him as a faithful disciple as a, a servant of Christ that maybe he's made a bad spiritual investment. He said, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now he's not talking about a, a, a fear like a, an emotional fear. He's talking about, you know, he is discerning, have I made a mistake here with you? That has my labor been empty? Is it not producing the end result? The end result is is clarity on the gospel and a walking out of the reality of progressively growing up in Christ. He'll say later on in the chapter that his agenda is that Christ be formed in you. That's my agenda. Transformation, maturity, holy living. That's what he's after. And what he's seeing here in the Galatians is he's not seeing that. And so he's getting very concerned. Maybe my work over you has not been as effective as I thought. Maybe you haven't really gotten it. I thought you got it, but maybe you haven't gotten it. So he's wrestling with this. He's clearly showing that he's concerned because he knows he serves a God that is expecting a profit, a return on his investment. You see that in parables such as uh, Luke 19, the parable of the minas, where the ju- when the, the master comes back and he holds the servants accountable for what they did with the mina that he gave to them before he left. So God has given us mina, time, talent, treasure, revelation. He's given us wonderful things. He expects us to steward that, to produce a spiritual crop. And that spiritual crop is disciples. That's the real test of any community of believers. Are we producing real disciples, people who are progressively becoming transformed into the image of Christ? I think by and large today, we we have a very low standard as to what that looks like the Apostle Paul did not have a low standard. He had a very high standard, and he was very concerned that his labor truly produce good fruit. Now, please know, in in saying this, he in no way is losing sight of the gospel of the grace of Christ. He He is living out the reality that when you really have that gospel, then you're motivated with such gratitude that you can do nothing else but serve the purpose of Christ. That's your whole reason for existence is to serve the purpose of Christ. And Christ is about transforming people into alignment with himself. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. That's his purpose and his agenda. Paul aligned with Christ. He obeyed not to get saved. He obeyed because he was saved. That is the key distinction. It's a very subtle distinction, but it is a huge distinction between legalism and truly living in the grace of Christ, or what he would call the way of grace. Now let me make a couple of theological points. Let me talk about the elementary, elemental principles of the world. Being enslaved to the elemental principles of the world means to live in bondage to the will and ways of the world that are inconsistent with God. Now, not every way of the world is necessarily inconsistent with God because the world, through common grace, can steal principles and values from God to do things that that are good On on a rudimentary level, not on a profound level. They can only do that so far. Mostly the will and ways of the world are inconsistent with God, and that is where we all start, is living that way. For example, the sin of Adam and Eve illustrated a pattern of worldly choices that begin with doubt and unbelief about the veracity of God. We all can get into that. This led to to coveting a call that God did not grant them. That is the right to define good and evil. They were not called to that. Nevertheless, they, they wanted to claim that right. And that was not granted to them. So consequently, to get it, they disobeyed the one commandment that they were given. Their sin led to to human potency or led to shame, and shame is the realization that you've missed the mark. And deep down in every human being, there's a realization they've missed the mark because they're all born with proclivity to sin. And shame then leads to performance, and that's the presumption of human potency. You presume that you have the power in yourself to remediate your sinful condition as portrayed by, by the nakedness. In other words, the nakedness reflects our sinful condition, and we think we can fix it. We think we can perform and put on the fig leaves, make the garments of fig leaves, put them on, then we'll be acceptable with God. But we know deep down, after we've done that, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. So we feel a need to, to hide, and so that's what we do. We hide. And then once we are caught and we're held accountable, then we blame. The man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent was stuck. He didn't have anybody to blame. So Adam and Eve were the first humanist and the archetype of humanism and humanity. In fact, we are all in their lineage. We are all in their seed. We have that all same proclivity to do the same thing that they did. Humanism is characterized by man-centered living, living according to the elemental principles of the world. This was the big problem with nominalism. When nominalism came about about a thousand years ago, it turned the culture into a man-centric world. Prior to that, the culture had largely been God-centered. Realism, which is the opposite of nominalism, is God-centered. Nominalism is man-centered. So nominalism opened the door for the unwinding of the culture that we're seeing today that impacts everything from education to economics to work to, to church to public policy to even the law. Everything is impacted by this unraveling and disconnecting from God that nominalism opened the door to a 1,000 years ago. So this means that living according to the will and ways of man are inconsistent with God, which will only lead to despair and death. That's the road we're on in nominalism is the road to despair and death. The elemental principles of the world are built on the pres- presumptions of human potency and homo mensura. Human potency is the assumption that man can do whatever man wants to do. Homo mensura is the assumption that man is the, has the right to define right and wrong as he pleases. That, that basically Adam and Eve procured what they sought, and that is the, the, the uh, right to define right and wrong. Well, they have a level of, right, of ability to do it, but the reality is they stole it. And there's going to be consequences on all of humanity for their theft. And it will not go well if we operate under this homo mensura assumption. Adam and Eve's efforts to remediate their fallen state illustrated how all humans tend to respond to sin. Because the sin nature of Adam and Eve is systemic in all human beings, we all tend to do what they did. So all you have to do is study their patterns, and you'll look and you'll see patterns just like it in your own life. Even Christians such as the Galatian believers and us today tend to assume that we can perform well enough to be worthy of God's acceptance and God's approval. Consequently, it is easy for those of us who truly know the Lord to be tempted to revert to, act, to acts of, of works based on the, as the basis of salvation. True Christians will experience this temptation no matter how mature they are. And the best way to fight this tendency is to become grounded in in christ that's the huge issue become rooted and grounded in christ and that's very very difficult for all of us to do now let me give you just a quick application here in conclusion all of us hire people all kinds of people we hire service providers we might be an employer we empower employees we might hire a contractor a subcontractor a contract laborer uh, we hire people for all kinds of things routinely in our culture because no one does everything well. No one even knows how to do everything. We all can do certain things and the other things that we can't do, we have to hire out. So when you hire someone, you have to know you hire not only that person, but you hire their worldview. Their worldview is, is their view of reality and is, is important to them in in how they live in their reality. This tells them what the values and principles and practices that they're going to embrace will be. Their worldview will define everything in their life, and their work product will reflect their worldview and impact you, the one that's hired them, and whomever is connected with you as well. So if you hire them as part of your family that, say, to do some work in your home, it impacts you, your wife. Uh, and your children and your grandchildren and your friends, everyone connected with you gets impacted by that decision. For people who don't know Christ, their worldview will be most likely Islamic, humanistic, or a brand of Eastern worldview, such as Chinese folk uh, religion, Hinduism, or Buddhism. Globally, second to Christianity, these are the most prominent worldviews, and all total these six most popular worldviews represent 93 percent of the global population, so there are not that many you know, worldviews. I mean, really, there. I know there's another seven percent that represents a whole, whole bunch, a parcel of them, bunches of them, scores of them, but they're all very, very small. The main worldviews are six. There are six of them. Christianity being the largest, and so whoever you hire most likely is embracing one of those six worldviews, and each one of them has a different value system, and therefore different views of work. The Apostle Paul would refer to these non-Christian worldviews as worldly, meaning that they are not of God and are therefore not correct. Consequently, anyone who adheres to one of these non-Christian philosophies will produce work that is inconsistent with a Christian worldview. We're moving in that direction, where the work product people are going to produce is going to be less and less reliable and less and less effective, and less and less quality-oriented. Some examples of worldly practices that emanate from non-Christian worldviews are self-centeredness and the focus on money. I call this the m M&M and syndrome. Self-centeredness is the preoccupation with self above others. This is the opposite of servant leadership and the opposite of biblical love. Both biblical love and servant leadership have a common definition, to sacrificially serve the purpose of God in another. But in non-Christian worldviews, the focus is not on sacrificially serving others, but on serving self. They want to sacrifice you to serve themselves. This is expressed in phrases such as, what's in it for me? This is called narcissism. Narcissistic people will make decisions based on pleasure, comfort, and convenience. They will not go the extra mile to deliver excellent value. They will tend to overpromise and underliver. They will do as little as they can and no more. And they will complain if they're asked what to do, do, if they're asked to do something they don't want to do, or feel it's unnecessary, or don't understand, or they don't want to do it. They'll want to know, why do I have to do this? Exacerbating narcissism is the focus on money. Narcissists usually work because they perceive a need to money. There's really no other reason for a narcissist to work but money. There's really no other reason motivating them. Hence, every decision is based on whether or not it will bring them the money they want. Any money, any work that is perceived that by them to be unprofitable and, and or not profitable enough will be rejected and most likely not done or at best done only half-heartedly. The result of their efforts will be poorly performed work. The m M&M m syndrome is an example of worldly ways. The Apostle Paul warned that not only do non-Christians display this syndrome, but professing Christians can as well. The work product of those who display the MM syndrome will be poor and the reputation will be poor, and the reputation of organizations who employ MM people will be tarnished. Wise people understand that the MM syndrome is the default condition of mankind. In other words, if you're an employer and hire somebody, there's a high probability that they will be they will be infected with the MM syndrome, even if they profess to be Christians. And that's, that's really scary. Wise people need to be very thoughtful and be realized that when they're hiring, making hiring decisions, that they are dealing with probably very, very likely M&M people. They will consider more than just the profession of faith and or outward appearances or sales pitches these people may make. Wise people will look deeper. They will try to discern the heart of the people they hire. They will consider the person's calling Worldview, key relationships, condition of his or her family, and work reputation. All of these reveal truth about the person's worldview and give clues as to whether or not the person will be able to rise above worldly ways. Only those who live according to God's will and ways will work with excellence, go the extra mile, serve the purpose of God and others sacrificially, and enjoy a stellar reputation. This level of living will be found only in those who have been truly born again and are being sanctified by the Spirit and are being grounded in Christ. And remember, if they're being grounded in Christ, it will be evident to you. Because Jesus said, it's by their fruit you will know them. May the Lord give us grace to see this reality and to live it well. In Jesus' name, amen.